Open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This message, I've had the title and an idea for this message for about a year and a half. It's changed names a couple of times. I'm going to tell you what it's called today. Is love the key to overcoming? Uh, Last year at this time, I had the idea that it would be entitled, Is Discernment the Key to Overcoming? In fact, until I wrote the closing of this message, it was still called that. You'll see, hopefully, why it's changed. Uh, If you know 1 Corinthians 13, you probably already know why it's changed. But I think discernment is tied to that. And we heard it in in both of the studies already broke down this morning. Uh, if, If you think to what... Charlie read there in Psalm 71, In thee, O Lord, do I put my trust, which ties in very well with what David brought out about uh, Toby Key's situation, that in that first verse, it's not just in thee do I put my trust, but the Lord by name. I've written in the margin of my Bible a great starting point, a great starting point. In 2024, as Christians are desperate to find ways to start the conversation of the Lord Jesus Christ, that verse is your best. There's a multitude of bad ways to start the conversation. Christmas, Easter, Lent, there's a lot of them. But this here is the best way to start the conversation. Is love the key to overcoming? 1 Corinthians 13, we'll read the whole chapter. It's 13 verses in a 13th chapter. Though I speak, Paul writing, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy, And understand all mysteries and all knowledge. And though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own. Charity is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in truth. Charity beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity never faileth, but but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. Paul says, When I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. And now abideth faith, hope, charity, but these three, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. It's described in that final verse as a three-fold cord, a strong binding agent that cannot be easily broken. And the greatest of those three being charity or love. We face a world now that has put aside love. And you might wonder if this is the first time you've ever heard a sermon on 1 Corinthians 13. Why is he talking about love and we're just talking about charity? Uh, it's the same word. Charity from this chapter in 1 Corinthians uh, is, is this, you, this original word is used 116 times and 86 times in the Bible is translated love. And a multitude of times is translated charity, most of which are in this particular chapter. 
They have repackaged, the world has repackaged what is essentially fleshly lust, and they call that love. Well, I'm going to call it, for the principles of this study, new love. They've forgotten their first love. They've forgotten real love, if they've ever known it at all, and they've replaced it with lust. This is how they can get to the point where they defend homosexuality, transgenderism. None of that nonsense is actually about the love that's talked about in 1 Corinthians 13. It's all about lust, flesh, the desires of that old man. In the last verse of this chapter, Paul says that charity is the greatest of this threefold cord, which includes faith, which we know from Hebrews 11 is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence or the conviction of things not seen. The third bond of this threefold cord is hope, which by Jesus bringing in this better hope, which we just talked about, we now can be made perfect and acceptable before God the Father. Also, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 19. What the world has done with the true definition of love is but an example of our dire need to be able to discern the truth of things. And Brother David touched on that a little bit in Sunday school this morning. Beloved, it's not the world's responsibility to say, hey, Christians, what I'm talking about here connects with Ezekiel 37. It's not the politician's job to say things in a manner in which it makes the most sense to Christians. There's a, a, a lot of Proverbs in here that talks about wisdom and understanding, is there not? And discernment is connected in all that. We have an understanding and a knowledge as born-again believers the world does not have. That's right. And we have a responsibility to make straight and understand certain things that are occurring, not just in the news, but in our homes, on the television. If you plan to watch this game tonight, and I did my best to wear Broncos colors. I know our mission's going to say that this is Chiefs colors, but I'll put my Bronco hat on if I have to. But if you're going to watch that game today, you better have some discernment. Because the commercials alone are going to expose you to some toxicity that is just simply Hollywood's theme for 2024. And this is the kickoff point. Beloved, we have got to be careful. We are racing toward the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And without charity, without love, everything, every gift that we have is utterly useless. That's what's spelled out in 1 Corinthians 13. Paul says, without love. You know, the things that we've gone through over the past year have led me to bust out the uh, Brother J.R. Graves' book on landmarkism. I don't know if I'd have gotten along with him. I'm not telling you I disagree with him, but I don't think I would have gotten along with him. In the, pre, in the prelude and in the first couple of chapters, I read the phrase unchurch. You all know how I feel about that. And I read all kinds of ugliness and Hurtful words as a man who's maybe been fighting a battle for a long time, and I'm sure that he had been. But without love, it's real hard to get past the opening of that book. You got anybody in your life that's not quote-unquote right on landmarkism? You might want to write your, own, write your own prelude to that book before you hand it to them. And beloved, we might have some real solid truths. I believe in landmarkism. We might have some real solid foundation for which the world needs to know about. But if I ball it up and beat them over the head with it, without love, it will not be received. Without love, we dare not say that this is godly wisdom and godly understanding and godly knowledge that we pour forth before other people. If not delivered in a godly way, it's just noise. I have a, a bachelor's degree in marketing, and one of the things that 
uh, was driven home in our senior year. The internet had been around a minute, but you know, gathering data had been around for a while. And they said there's a difference between data and information. And that's the usefulness of said data. You can collect a ton of information, this included. But if it's not actually useful, if it's not delivered in a way that it can be connected to, if it's not applicable in any possible way, it's just useless data. To me, with the mind that I have and the market research that I do, I might dig around a little bit and find some things. My wife's brain doesn't work that way. Somebody delivers a spreadsheet full of data to my wife, she's going to say this is white noise. I can't, I can't get through it. She's smarter than I am. But she, we need to make sure that we're delivering these things in a contextual way. And what is the most contextual, applicable way in which we've been uh, commissioned to give the gospel? In love. Because there's not a human on this planet that doesn't need it. That's why we've been told to use it. To bind our faith and our hope with this thing called charity. Which is the strongest of faith, hope, and charity. That it be a cord that cannot be broken. If we are to go and give the gospel to the boys' home, we better go with charity, men. Yeah, we need to talk about faith. We need to talk about hope. I gave you scriptural examples. It's in there. But without love, what are we doing? We've been truly, if we've been truly transformed by the touch of the Savior, we cannot afford to think the way that we used to, as he talks about in verse 11 of our text and deliver the gospel that we've been called to give. This uh, is a rare sermon of mine. I don't, I'm not great with illustrations. I'll just con- come forth with that. I've read a lot of books on the preparation of sermons and trying to nail down different great ways to do those things. But if you've been paying attention the last seven months, I'm not fantastic with illustrations. If a sermon's going to go off the rails, it's usually when I step out this way and say, you know it's like, and there it goes. So there's quite a few in this sermon. Sorry. There's a story I read this week about a little girl and her mother riding the subway. And there's a, an old, cantankerous, cranky old, uh, woman on the train with them. She's dirty. She's roughed up. She's probably seen quite a few things. Her heart seems so hard that it's calloused even on the outside. And this little girl, probably Zeb's age, goes up to her and says, I got a bunny at home. And the old woman says, you, you know, move away from me. I'm not friendly. I'm not clean. I'm not somebody that you want to, to really come over here with. The mother grabs her by the hand and pulls her back and says, you know, she, she wants to be left alone. And the little girl, insistent, like you all see of Zeb most times, goes over and puts her little hand on the woman's hand and says, but I have a bunny at home and I want to tell you about my bunny. And everyone on the subway could tell that her countenance was suddenly lifted. That this old woman, she didn't suddenly become clean on the outside. She didn't suddenly become wealthy or warm or healthy. All the wrong in her life didn't suddenly become right. But suddenly she was opened like a book. And she wanted nothing more than to hear about this money. We just read about Jesus and the little children a week or two ago. And he talked about our approach to the kingdom. And it's not just our approach to the kingdom. It's our approach to others with the kingdom. I got a bunny. I got a mansion. Up on the hilltop. That the Lord Jesus Christ is preparing for me. 
And no, it's not a giant mansion. It's a place. It's a dwelling place. But of my own, I couldn't earn a dwelling place in the kingdom of heaven. And he's preparing that for me. I'm not, not only am I going to go to heaven, but there's a place being prepared for me. I belong there. I have a home there. I got a bunny and I want to tell you about it. Matthew 8, 3, Jesus put forth his hand and, and touched him saying, I will be thou clean. And immediately the leprosy was cleansed. We just talked about this situation with the lepers, but this was not the, of the 10. This was a different one. We've already talked about this one. But this leper's changed forever. Were he to return to the Lord Jesus Christ and say, please replace this leprosy. Put it back on me. I liked my misery better. I like shouting, unclean, stay away. I don't want to be near you. You don't want to be near me. We would say this is absolutely ludicrous. He must not have ever been healed to begin with to desire his original state again. And it is just as odd for us to attempt to desert our new nature and our new understanding that we've been given in Christ. I have quite a few points with just little details underneath them because there's so many. But there's five things we want to discuss. When we are touched and changed, we have a deeper foundation. Secondly, when we are touched and changed, the world should see the true difference. Thirdly, when we are touched and changed, we are made whole on the inside and it comes forth on the outside. Fourthly, when we are touched and changed, we have a different spirit. And finally, when we are touched and changed, we have a better future awaiting. First and foremost, when we are touched and changed, we have a deeper foundation. If we were to watch as they build the next great skyscraper in Tulsa, we would note that they didn't just start laying bricks and stone on top of the ground and just pile them up. When you were a kid, you remember playing with Lincoln Logs? You'd have those flat ones that you put on the surface. Now, I'm stepping to the left of the pulpit now. Everybody's just waiting for me to derail. But on the flat surface, we'd set those kind of cut in half Lincoln Logs, right, Liv? And we'd start building up. What happens when Zeb comes through and kicks it? It goes flying because it's set on top of the earth. It's not dug in. When they build this skyscraper, we'd expect to see steam shovels building a giant hole, emptying the area of what once was uh, so that they can build a solid foundation. they got to build down before they can build up. The beginning of our changes are on the inside, deep below the surface. It's Jesus himself, this chief cornerstone. That is to sit atop that throne of our stony heart that's got to be removed. It's got to be dug up. It's got to be pulled out. It's got to be unearthed. So that this fleshly heart of feeling can be a proper throne for the Christ Jesus. And with Him sitting there, He can build His temple. With Him sitting there, He can utilize the life of one who's been born again in a great many ways. It's not a shallow grave. It's a deep foundation. Everything that is to enter that foundation space will be measured to that one true corner. These true measurements are the beginning of discernment, the beginning of understanding in the believer, the beginning of wisdom. Like a skyscraper with a shallow foundation without Jesus laid deep within us, we would soon topple and fall. Listen to Matthew chapter 7. 
verses 24 through 27. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, Jesus says, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell not. For it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. If you write in the margins of your Bible there in Matthew 7, you, you might write the phrase period of time. Because what he's describing here is not one afternoon of a gentle rainstorm. It is pounding and pounding and pounding and pounding. And then when you think you've had enough rain, the winds come and they howl and they blow and they blow and they blow. And when you think that's all that you could handle, the earthquakes come. And the 4.1s to the 5.9s, they quake because the rain keeps pounding and the wind keeps blowing. But that house built upon a rock stands. Those upon the sand, gone. We are not constructed. That hard part is not removed so that we can handle an afternoon storm. It's so that we can handle the first month and a half of 2024 and then some. It's so that we can handle that which we've been called for. What have you been called for? What grand purpose does the Lord have for your life? I bet it's more than just an afternoon rain. You know how disappointing it would be if you were just called for one afternoon Secondly, we are touched and changed. The world should see a true difference. Different roots, different starting points, different foundations. And the impact will travel up the side even of that great skyscraper that we just talked about. Providentially perfect, the two messages that we had in Sunday school, again, tie directly into this. We're left with questions over some of our dead. Were they saved or were they not? Did they have a deep foundation or shallow roots? Were they of the Lord Jesus? Will we see them again in paradise? Or was this it? The winds and storms, they'll prove the strength of that foundation. There was once a man known by the nickname Old Born Drunk. It was told that this drunk, his drunken parents once gave him whiskey as a baby and a habit was born. And one day, old born drunk heard the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and that poor old soul wept as the light chased away the dark of his innermost self. After his conversion, he went into all the old places distributing tracts and helping others to find the liberty that he had found in Christ. His life had been touched by Jesus and all men were made aware of the difference. Isn't that old born drunk? What is that in his hand? Oh, here comes old born drunk again. I bet he's coming for his old bar stool. But no, he's, he looks lighter. He looks happy. He looks content. And he goes around with the tracks, talking and almost preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as that once blind man did when the synagogue kicked him out. The same is true of Peter and John. In Acts chapter 4, verse 13, we read, Now when they, and according to the previous verses, verse 5 in particular, the they here is the rulers, the elders, and the scribes. 
So now when the rulers, elders, and scribes saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled. And they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Amen. The last part of that verse ought to be true of every single one of us. Whether we're waiting in line to get a social security card, waiting in line to get our fingerprints, waiting in line, is, that's a challenge for me. You can tell all my illustrations are coming from that, that place. But whatever it is that we're doing, wherever it is that we're going, the world should be caused to marvel. Isn't that Joe? He's unlearned and ignorant. But he's been with Jesus. Is it true of you and I? This drunkard did not require a lot of discernment to note that he was once a prisoner and now set free. And that's all the knowledge you need. That blind man that we've been talking about the last few weeks, he didn't have a lot of discernment except that he was once blind. They said, who did it? How did he do it? Why did he do it? What sin caused this blindness? The disciples said at the beginning of that event. But the only discernment he needed was that I was once blind. They couldn't even prove that. Remember, they argued with him in the synagogue, and he probably wasn't even blind then. But he knew, I was blind, now I'm not. Go start preaching. That was the truest of all truths to that blind man. The truest of all truths to this drunkard. A tree with good roots, though he appear dead in winter, will soon show fruit of life in his leaves as spring returns. The tree whose roots are shallow will show no difference to the world no matter what season it is. The old shallow roots will continue to reveal death in her limbs month after month after month. Thirdly, when we are touched and changed, we are made whole on the inside and it comes forth on the outside. The chief work of the Lord Jesus Christ, beloved, is in the hearts of men. He had to remind folks that He did not come to set them free of Roman oppression. He did not come to straighten out taxation. He did not come to remove the centurions from their communities. He had a greater work and that was in the hearts of men. He illustrated it with every miracle that he performed. Okay. Folks are being persecuted today all around the world, not for being a member of a certain church, but because they believe in Jesus in their hearts and have been given over to confessing Him on the outside. They are persecuted because their words are causing torment to the lovers of darkness. They are persecuted because they actually do know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. This past summer, I watched as some of these crews were out here putting in these new poles um, this side of the parking lot. And five or six of them were down in the, in the hole, trying to land the pole down the hole. And then there was one up here on the parking lot that's a little bit further elevated. And he'd tell them, you know, to the left, to the right, my way, that way, because it had to be straight. And after the pole was dropped, he would continue to signal until it was perfectly straight, and then they'd start dropping the dirt. The pole carries power to the people. It needed to be healthy. It needed to be upright. It needed to be set right. We carry the power of the Lord Jesus Christ and His blood to the people. We need to be straight. We need to be upright. We need to be attentive to His Word. We need to be attentive to His services, to worshiping Him. 
whether that means driving two and a half hours from Wichita early on a Sunday morning, or whether it just means get out of bed and get here, or whether it means get up every day of the week and open up the Word of God and find out what it is we've been charged with. We must be straightened. We must be prepared. These are the last days. Whether it's this month, this spring, or 20 years from now, we must be straight. We carry the power of God. Being truly straightened out on the inside should give us little choice but to convey it to the world. When springtime comes and those buds begin, they see life. We rejoice over said life. Fourthly, when we are touched and changed, we have a different spirit. Back in Numbers 14, the Israelites came up with the concept of sending spies into the land of promise. And we've referenced this a few times. I've not given you the chapter in particular. I'm giving it to you now. You can study it tonight if you'd like. But the spies were sent in. God allowed it. We mentioned that recently. He permitted it. He would never have given commandment to send spies to see if he was telling the truth about the land he had promised to his people. But he allowed it. And two that came back, Joshua and Caleb said, it's ours for the taking. God has promised us this land. It's wonderful. The others came back with an evil report. But down toward the middle to the end of Numbers 14, we see that Caleb had another spirit. This is the words of the Lord, that Caleb had another spirit. When he and Joshua and the other ten spies returned from the promised land to the, uh, 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 to the nation of Israel that was waiting outside Canaan, the Lord says of him, because he'd followed me fully, in verse 24, he has another spirit. Caleb followed me fully. Can you imagine having that testimony? And these are the word of, this is the word of the Lord. This is my beloved one who followed me fully. He's got a different spirit than y'all, is what he's saying. He's not buying into the evil report. Following fully a God that is described by Moses in verse 18 of Numbers 14 as the Lord who is long-suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression. Caleb was following that God fully. He who has been touched and changed by Christ should also now be exhibiting a different spirit in the fruit. He should be following fully this God who is long-suffering. That means we should be too. Who is great of mercy, which means we should be too. Lord, help us. Who is forgiving of iniquity and transgressions. Even the ones who hurt me over and over again. Yep, even him. No physical gift can be given to the born-again believer that is greater than what he has received spiritually through Jesus. This should give us little to be envious over. This should help us to see this charity that's described in 1 Corinthians 13. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity bondeth not itself. It's not puffed up, verse 4. Charity doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, Lord help us, thinketh no evil. Charity rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity never Faileth, our text says. If we're following fully this God described in Numbers 14, this God who's been revealed to us, the born-again believer, as our Savior, the 
description of charity should be the description of us. If we are to call ourselves Christ-like or Christian, what is Christ to the born-again believer? But the greatest example of mercy, the greatest show of love this world has ever seen. He is a judge. Don't mistake me. I'm not saying he's only love. But for us, this is what we know. He's taken the brunt of our punishment for our wickedness and sin. Paul said in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness. Power under control. Considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Do modern Christians live by this rule? Do we? I unfortunately do think of our politicians a lot when it comes to verses like this. If and when our current president, who isn't all there, and recently he said the president of Egypt was the president of Mexico, was what I read earlier this week. They're pretty close, Mexico and Egypt, you know. Their continents are shaped about the same, right, Isaac? Not too far off. If he does indeed get removed from office for being a lunatic, Will Christians rejoice? We're being tested, I think, with our politics the last few years. Do you know who puts the king over America? Who lifts him to that position? And yet how many of us call President Trump, Trump? President Biden, Biden. How many of us disrespect them in our minds and hearts just about every day? I understand the news and the media and the press encourage it. Shut them off. Unsubscribe. You don't need that kind of chaos and that kind of noise in your heart and mind and life. You're to be an example of charity. Can you be both? We are to do nothing that keeps a sinner in sin. We are to not cast a shadow on the gospel. Let me say this first part again. We are to do nothing that keeps a sinner in sin. Read the rest of Jude. I think we read verse 18 this morning. Read the rest of it. Pulling some from the fire. Is not the Spirit of Christ who was noted for saying, go and sin no more? Is it not Christ Jesus who said, go and sin no more? Repetitively, but John 8, 11 for sure. Go and sin no more. One's brought before him that most definitely was caught in the act of sin. He deals with the people who brought her forward, but he ends the conversation with go and sin no more. We're to do nothing that keeps a sinner in sin. If he judged her too, what was she going to do next? Probably the same thing. What about the woman at the well? If he had judged her too, without charity, just reveals all this truth and says, you got to get right. Was she going to? We're to do nothing that keeps a sinner in sin. Nothing that harbors the idea that where you are is where you remain. That goes for the lost who might come into our path, but also the born again. If you are here in this room now, dabbling in sin, you have no friend in this book. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Be done with such things. 
Fifth and lastly, when we are touched and changed, we have a better future awaiting. We're going to go back to Hebrews 11 again. We have a better future awaiting. Hebrews 11, verses 13 through 16. These all died in faith, one of the three parts of this cord, not having received tangibly the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country. That is, an heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. Here is the fruit of our better hope, who vicariously made it possible that we be where he is now. Our better hope made it possible for us to stand and say, there is therefore now no more condemnation. He made it possible for us to recognize in and of ourselves that our sin is removed as far as the east is from the west. I don't know why I do that wrong every time. John 14, 3, he says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, and where I am, there you may be also. He says this in such a way that if there's fault in any of the statements that he says, all of it can be tossed out, which means none of it can. If any of it's true, all of it's true. That's right. He says, If I go, then you can know 100% confidently that I am preparing a place for you. And if I have gone, and if I have prepared a place for you, I will come again and receive you, that it be inhabited, because it was created like you for a purpose. And where I am, there you'll be. What lies ahead for the believer is a thousandfold better than anything we have ever known here. Think of your greatest day. It doesn't compare. Your greatest emotion, your greatest moment, it doesn't compare. In our old age, we'll tell the young people of our many adventures and of the things that we've seen. I can only speak of my old age. I know you all have seen a few more things than me. But for Rebecca and I, we've seen the first cellular phones, the internet, virtual reality, the Detroit Lions making the NFC championship game. My grandkids aren't going to believe it. It's not going to happen again. All will pale by comparison to just the first few moments we spend with the Lord in paradise. Now, I don't say we'll forget these things. I think, I believe we're going to be made perfect. I believe that the, the, the stuttering that we do when we're trying to find a word, forgetting a name, seeing a face we can't place, all that will be gone. I don't know if all the hairs on our head will come back. I've heard preachers say that. I don't really miss it. But to have a perfect mind... I think will break us down in a lot of ways because we'll remember just how much we don't deserve paradise and we'll be that much more thankful for the one who made it all possible. We have a better future awaiting. Is it so much to ask that we live and express charity as our perfect example for the remaining days of our lives? Is it so much to ask that we reflect Christ Jesus to the world? 
When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. I had an excuse. When I became a man, I put away childish things. Are we in this room adults in Christ? We have, therefore, no more excuses. If we do know what is expected of us, what is asked of us as Christians, and we do not do it, we err greatly. If we do have an idea of what might be asked of us, but we decide to study it not, that we might have to change something in our lives, that we might be inconvenienced by what is expected of us, we err. He's very forthcoming. Very forthcoming in his expectations. The confusion doesn't come from the starting point. It comes from us. With these things in mind, like that sweet little girl in our opening with the bunny, we should be overjoyed that we have such a prize to come home to. So overjoyed that there's not a stranger we won't tell. The world is hard. The world is cranky. The world is stubborn. Those of the world love their sin. They love darkness. They're not going to come out of it willingly. Let us take them by the hand and show them that real meaning of love. I have a bunny. I want you to know about my bunny. I want you to know about this paradise. I have a hope. I want you to hear about it. That passion for which God had set us free is what will set them free indeed. That they might be forever overcome by Him as we are. May the Lord receive all the honor and glory for it.